Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 7. If you have your phone or your Bible, it'll also be on the screen uh, behind me. That's where we're going to get to in just a, a few moments. We're in our series, Exiles to Heirs, through the book of Nehemiah. And we'll, as I mentioned, be in the seventh chapter. Today, we're uh, a little over halfway in the series. It's going to take us through the rest of the summer. But as you're turning there, uh, I'm guessing by virtue of you living in the city of Chicago that you consider yourself somewhat to be a city person. Uh, I never knew how much of a city person I was until I moved to Chicago in 2005. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, which has a lot of people, but it's not a very urban place, if that makes sense. Uh, it was, I grew up very suburban, um, and I didn't really have a concept of what it was like to live in a metropolis until I moved here in 2005, and I lived uh, in a studio about the size of this rug here at the corner of Diversity and Halstead as I was going to DePaul University, and I had never experienced anything so wonderful in my entire life. There were people everywhere. I loved it. And something was always happening, and something was always being created. Something was always rubbing up against something else and being challenged, and things were being uh, built, broken down, built again, and and I just love it. I'm a city person, and I'm not sorry. I'm a city person. So my wife, Jess, is also a city person, so we're just, we love being in cities. So this past March, when we took vacation for a week over spring break, our kids' spring break, we did what typical city people would do, and we packed everybody in our minivan, and we went and we drove on vacation to New York City (laughs) with our four kids. And we yanked them onto the train. We went to Central Park. We went everywhere. We went to the Statue of Liberty. It was just, it was the best, wildest, most adventurous week ever. But we're city people. But along the way, you drive through a lot of not city. And listen, I'm not here to down the great states of Indiana and Ohio and Pennsylvania. They are awesome places, I know. But they are long stretches of basically the same thing. (laughs) And listen, I grew up in Florida where it's long stretches of basically the same thing. So I'm not knocking it. But while we were on our trip, we were in Ohio. And, you know, in Ohio, they have those rest stops. I don't know if you've ever driven east to west across Ohio. They have the rest stops that are like the oasis because you're paying to be on the highway. So it's not just exiting on and off the highway willy-nilly. You got to go on to one of the oasis. And, you know, they have the typical suburban American staples of like Panera, Starbucks. You know, it's just... You know, you pull in and you go to the bathroom and you you get something. Well, we pulled into a rest stop about halfway across the state of Ohio on our trip. And my kids started going bonkers because it's like, we're here. Like, we made it. This is vacation. Look at this place, Dad. We can get a cookie at Panera. Mom can get her chai tea at Starbucks. There's even an arcade at the rest stop. And we were there. They knew we were going to New York City. So I had to stop and calmly re-envision them <laughs> and convince them that where we were actually heading was beyond cooler than where we were in that exact moment. <laughs> Plenty of arcades in New York City if you want to go. So what helped them envision, get, get envisioned for that was at this sort of turnpike oasis, they have this massive map and it shows you where you are across the great state of Ohio. And says, you're at this rest stop. There will be seven more rest stops or whatever before you enter Pennsylvania where there will be 30 other rest stops. And what it did was it helped my kids get 
sort of a sense of where we were. It pulled our trip back to sort of a grander view, a little bit further back, a little bit higher, and it helped them say, oh, this is where we are, which I'm excited about. This is where we've been, which, wow, we've made it. This is where we're going. And because of where we're going and the excitement of that, it actually makes where we are even more exciting, even more exciting. And it really helped to envision my kids. Well, I want to, I want to say that where we are in the book of Nehemiah right now, in Nehemiah chapter 7, affords us a unique opportunity to sort of pull the story back a little bit. We've been very much on the ground with Nehemiah, very practical. He's been rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Everything has been very much in front of us. But there's an opportunity now because the book of Nehemiah is going to take a little bit of a turn that we can kind of step back for a few moments and pull things back in the story. And what I'm trusting for is that it's going to give us a little bit of a higher vantage point of God's... It's going to afford us a chance to be reminded of God's heart for all people, for everyone at all times, for his purposes for everyone, and just how grand those purposes are. I'm hoping that this higher vantage point will afford us a chance to be encouraged and reminded about just who God is. And just what he has the prerogative to do because of who he is. And I'm hoping that this higher vantage point will afford us the chance to be stirred afresh for all that God is doing right now in our place in this grander story of what God is doing. Essentially what he does through, through us, in us, and can I even say beyond us. It's like we are, we are on that map picture in church in the city here, us as individuals and a local church. God is doing something, but he's also doing something further and further beyond us, and I want us to be stirred for that. So there's an exciting point in the events of Nehemiah. Uh, it's a bit of a transition, as I was mentioning. If you've been following along on our series, where we hit Nehemiah chapter 7, it's a bit of a tipping point in the events. We are moving past what most of the book has built towards to this point, and that is that Nehemiah uh, and those who uh, journeyed with him to Jerusalem came to rebuild the broken down walls of the city of Jerusalem. And we'll go back and review some of that in just a moment. But essentially, in Nehemiah chapter 6, in just one verse, it says, so the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. So what we've been building towards has had a sense of completion. And now it's as if the book takes a shift, and Sheetal will be preaching next week, and Aiden in the coming weeks about what, is, what that transition is going to look like, and it's, it's moving from a place of rebuilding to a place of reviving a nation, reviving a nation, essentially moving from a place of needing restoration to that place of living having been restored, and what happens there, and that's in the coming weeks of our series. So if you're just joining us today, let's briefly review, and I, I emphasis on brief, but the story of Nehemiah up to this point has illustrated a lot to us thus far. We know that Nehemiah began as a cupbearer in the court, the foreign court of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And King Artaxerxes is not just any king. He's the emperor, he's the per- he rules over the Persian empire, which is the captor of Nehemiah's people, the Israelites. So he's in the court of a foreign hostile king and he's the cupbearer. And Nehemiah catches a great burden for the state of the walls of Jerusalem when his brother returns and reports uh, that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruins and they're broken down. And Nehemiah, who has never been to Jerusalem before, catches such a great burden for these walls to be rebuilt and restored because they were in ruins. Jerusalem was the representative place of God's presence 
on the earth. And Nehemiah knew that. So these are not just city walls. They are representative of God's work and God's presence. So Nehemiah responds by praying for months. Months. Lord, today. Lord, today. Lord, today. For months and months and months. It's a, it's a unique God-seeking response to a vision and burden. And not only does he pray, but Nehemiah prays with the expectation that God will actually answer his prayer. He begins to order, he orders his life and his posture of how he lives with an expectation that God is actually going to answer. Imagine praying like that. Not only just praying to the Lord because praying is good and that feels like it should be on a bumper sticker somewhere, but praying because God is real and he's at work and I'm actually going to expect that God will move. And God does move. And in that moment of action for Nehemiah, when he's before King Artaxerxes and he's, he's bearing the cup, and, and the king says to him, I've never seen you this down. What's wrong? And Nehemiah shares about the walls of Jerusalem. And then because of what Nehemiah has prayed and because God has used Nehemiah's circumstances to prepare him for what is coming, Nehemiah acts in great, incredible, kind of insane, hilarious boldness. And this cupbearer says to the king, can I actually go to Jerusalem? And begin to rebuild the walls. And the king says yes. And, and Nehemiah goes further. Can I actually have letters from you to give me safe passage? And can I actually have timber and supplies from the royal treasury to go? And the king says yes. And the best way Nehemiah can describe it later on as he's telling the people who are working on the wall. Is he says, the gracious hand of my God was upon me. You think? Such a posture of not only praying before the Lord in response to vision, but expecting God to move. And in the moment of action, we see great faith rise. So Nehemiah hits the ground in Jerusalem, and this vision is fueled on the ground by certain things. First of all, it's fueled by God's incredible faithfulness and protection. God watches over the work. He watches over the people doing it. It's fueled by Nehemiah's intimacy with God. We see constantly throughout the book of Nehemiah that Nehemiah prays dedicated intimate, sometimes spontaneous prayers unto the Lord. Sometimes the prayers are three or four paragraphs long. Sometimes the prayers are a sentence long. Doesn't that give us great encouragement for what it means to talk to God all the time, to really pray without ceasing? This vision to rebuild the walls is fueled by Nehemiah's testimony envisioning others and bringing others into what God is doing. He says, the gracious hand of my God is upon me. Join me in this because God is at work and we see people respond. This vision is fueled by well-led unity amongst the people. Well-led unity amongst the people. Aiden preached a few weeks back that as as we go through just who is working on the wall, it's not all experts. It's sons and daughters and some who make perfume and men and women and old and young. And they've all come together to work on the wall. It's a well-led, unified effort. We see Nehemiah fueling this vision by confronting publicly and taking on injustice amongst the people. By saying outright that privilege and those who have it should not use it for their own benefit, but it should be for the benefit of others and not assuming that what we have, what we are privileged to have, is just for us. But it's furthermore for others and even furthermore from that should never be used for abuse or oppression, which Nehemiah takes head on in his own people. And lastly, Steve preached last week that Nehemiah's vision on the ground to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem was fueled by himself humbly standing firm in the face of great opposition, remembering who God is and fighting in the midst of opposition. 
And Steve preached so wonderfully last week on the fact that our enemy, the devil, doesn't change. He doesn't develop his tactics. He doesn't, he doesn't alter his approach. He will always seek to lie and always seek to bring doubt. But because our enemy's approach doesn't change, our response doesn't need to change either. Our response is that of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, remembering who God is, remembering his faithfulness, remembering, therefore, who he has called us to be, and acting in faith to stand firm and say, I will not yield or succumb to fear, not because of my own power, but because of who God is. And that helps fuel the rebuilding of the walls on the ground in Jerusalem. And as I mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15, almost understated, it says, and so the walls of Jerusalem were completed. And you read that verse and you go, I see that the walls of Jerusalem were completed, and I see several more chapters in the book of Nehemiah. Where are we going here? Where are we going here? A little narrative irony there for you and anticipation. Well, we're going to Nehemiah chapter 7, and, and so let's, let's begin in, in verse 1. And let's take it from this place of the walls have been completed. And so a very fair question that maybe is rising up in you is, now what? Now what? And Nehemiah is going to help us answer that question. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, musicians, and the Levites, that's the priests, were appointed. Can I just say really quick before we go on? I'm going to do that. You see a big, long passage, and I'm only going to read one verse and start to comment, and you go... It's going to take forever. Trust me, it's not. But I just love how common and understated Nehemiah is. We just, just, everything in the book has been building to this. The walls are completed. And Nehemiah, it's like he's talking to you at the bus stop with his coffee. Yeah, so after the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the musicians, and the Levites were appointed. Oh, look, the 66 is coming. Think of the different people, just really quick, that God used over millennia, the different men and women to, that God, the Holy Spirit, worked through to, to compile Scripture. If this had been Moses, let's just play Moses for just a second. Moses would have been like, Lord, I am not worthy to set in the gatekeepers. I'm unable to set in the musicians. I don't play music. Have my brother Aaron set in the musicians and gatekeepers. If this was David, David would have been like, okay, before we set in everybody, I need the bass section over here. This is going to be a psalm of David of setting in the gatekeepers. And, 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 and Peter would have been like, we're setting in the gatekeepers and drawing his sword and going for it. But, but isn't it amazing that God didn't need perfect people? He, he just, he uses the men and women that he had who were there and available in the moment. And Nehemiah is ultra understated. And the gatekeepers, musicians, and Levites are set in because the walls have been rebuilt halfway through the book. It's just a little for free. That's what happens when I read scripture. I digress. I'm not saying I digress now. I'm saying I digress when I read scripture. <laughs> Keep going in verse 2. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. And I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. We're going to unveil. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. But also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. We're going to unveil Jerusalem. It's, it's been under opposition. We're going to unveil it. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles, officials, and common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. Now... 
If you're reading on your Bible or in your Bible or on your phone, you'll see that there's a long, long list following this verse of names and numbers and families and descendants and people who have returned. And and there's 63 verses in total of this genealogical record of the Jewish people who had actually returned to Jerusalem before Nehemiah had gotten there. And if you're like me, sometimes when you come up upon these passages of Scripture that are just numbers and lists and stuff, you can kind of treat them as throwaway. You know, like when you're doing a Bible reading plan and two out of the three chapters you have to read that day are lists and you go, sweet, I only have to read one chapter. Come on. I feel, you're like, great, I just get credit for those. Because surely what can God show me through, I mean, my life verse is not going to be, and the descendants of Pashon were 38. It's tattooed, right? You know? But we need to be very careful. We need to be very careful. And we need to not treat these verses that way. And we're going to see why in a few moments. We need to resist that thinking. We'll come back to their importance. So here's our first opportunity to take the story of Nehemiah and where it is and kind of yank it back a little bit to that further back vantage point. And we're going to ask the question, what is this genealogical record that Nehemiah is talking about? All of a sudden, we, all of a sudden we see the people who had first returned. Who are these first returners? To answer these questions, we need to go almost 100 years back. Or just one book back in your Bible to the book of Ezra. Here is a quick catch-up on the recent history of Israel up to this point. You can do it. You can stick with me. If you can know the order of the Marvel Universe or the the Chronicles of Narnia and you all think which one came first and all that, you, you can follow a brief history of the people of Israel. When Israel asked for a king, God, God gave them Saul. And then David was anointed king. And David's son Solomon came after him. Each man ruled for 40 years each. But Solomon, at the end of his reign, had dishonored God to the point where actually the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. It was the kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And these two kingdoms existed for several centuries side by side. And they they kind of went back and forth between good kings who honored the Lord and bad kings who dishonored the Lord. Mostly bad kings who dishonored the Lord. And the kingdom of Israel in the north was conquered and exiled by the Assyrians. And almost 130 years later, the kingdom of Judah in the south was conquered and exiled by Babylon. And we're going to zero in on Judah for just a moment, the southern kingdom, because that's where Jerusalem is. They fall to Babylon, and later on, Babylon gets conquered by Persia. And now we can turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 1. We're nearly 100 years before where Nehemiah is right now. And in Ezra chapter 1, the conquered people of Judah, who are conquered by by Babylon and then assumed conquered by their their captors, Persia. The book of Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you that's in his entire realm may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Here is what's happening and here's why it's important. 
nearly 100 years before where we are in Nehemiah, after 70 years of captivity between Babylon and Persia, after multiple prophecies and promises that God will restore his people to their homeland, not just for their good, but for his glory, God moves on the heart of a completely pagan king. Completely pagan king. God moves on his heart to restore the temple of God in Jerusalem and send exiled people back. There is no earthly reason why this should happen. Literally no earthly reason. And can I just say as a side note, isn't it good to know that it really doesn't matter who the king or queen is? God can move. I know it's meaningful for us here in the earthly state. We care about who the king or queen is. But for God's purposes, I'm not making light of it, but for God's purposes, it actually doesn't matter. God moved on the heart of a foreign, conquering, pagan, godless king. And he issues a proclamation saying, let's do this. Let's rebuild God's temple. There's nothing the Lord can't do. So the exiles begin to return to Jerusalem. Why? To rebuild the temple of God that was destroyed when they were conquered. The dwelling place of God's presence. And how? How are they going? Are they staggering back? Are they, are they struggling and making their way? No, they're going with offerings and provisions and free goodwill offerings from the people that they live next to because the pagan king said to do it. God is amazing. He's amazing. So who are these first returners? They are the, they're, they're really the first exiles to heirs. They're coming back because they've been sent back by this pagan king. And this exact list of people who are returning can be found in Ezra chapter 2. We're not going to read it, but it is a carbon copy word for word of Nehemiah chapter 7. This is the list that Nehemiah is reading. He's saying, let's see who has come here because the city is large and spacious and it's not very full yet. So we've pulled back this vantage point and we see that God is not just working here. He has been working. He has been working. And so why are we having this quick history lesson? Why, are we, why, are, why is this all important? Here's why it's important. Because God will use anyone at any time. God will use anyone at any time to accomplish his purposes. If you have time to read through uh, Ezra, it's, 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 ten, it's ten chapters, and it goes right into Nehemiah. They actually used to be regarded as one book. Read this, and you see multiple pagan kings, multiple generations, multiple centuries, multi- multiple decrees, and, and decrees back at decrees, and I don't want the Israelites to do this, but I'm the king, and, they, and I say they can, and back and forth in what God uses over multiple centuries, whether it's Nehemiah the cupbearer, or Ezra, the the priest and scribe, who actually leads a second return of exiles, or Zerubbabel, the governor of Persia, who actually leads the first. It doesn't matter. God will use anyone at any time. And can I just say, God will use you. God will use you. What have you disqualified yourself from? How have you classified yourself and limited yourself and and brought disqualification on yourself Say, I'm surely, I'm surely out of where God can use me. I'm sorry. God used a pagan king to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. God can use certainly a heart that is submitted to him. God can use anyone at any time. 
So God sovereignly and effortlessly orchestrates his purposes in restoring Jerusalem. And he sovereignly and gently is inviting these exiles back to inhabit the city of his presence. But I want to say, and we'll see this soon, ancient Jerusalem is not the only city that God has built or is building. Now, we've pulled back the story of Nehemiah to celebrate what God accomplished there on a grander scale. And I'm I'm trusting that something of Nehemiah's story now is becoming grander in light of what God has done up to this point to make it happen. But God isn't just after the restoration of an ancient people. Let's pull back the story of what God is doing even further, further than the story just of the ancient Israelites, further than the story of just you and me, but let's, let's take a glimpse of eternity as best we can, because God is not just rebuilding ancient Jerusalem. He's not just after this ancient people. God is after everyone, no exceptions. God is after everyone, no exceptions. We did a brief history of, of, of the Israelites up to this time. Let's do a brief history of you and me, really quick. We start out as enemies of God. We start out as enemies of God. And it's simply by virtue of one simple fact. God is holy and perfect and blameless. The Bible uses the word righteous, which means completely justified, unable to be wrong. That is where God is. We are not that way. And we're not that way simply because of something called sin. Sin is our every inclination, thought, desire, and action that puts ourselves into the centerpiece of our life instead of God. And it serves the work of separating us from God because that unholiness cannot last in God's presence. But God didn't settle for this separation. Through all of history, as we've just seen from a little bit of a, of a, of a higher vantage point, God has been pursuing his people, all people, no exceptions. And the separation between God and man was was something that God could not abide. And for the purpose of bringing people back to him, he, he culminates his pursuit of us in sending the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is fully God, as God the Father is fully God, as God the Holy Spirit is fully God, all three in one, the The Son of God became human, came to earth, and began to do the work of being sinless, not having an inclination of himself before God. And in spite of that sinlessness, took the punishment for sin, that separation from God in the form of death. But God did not allow him to stay dead. God raised him from the dead and that victorious raised Jesus who had conquered sin His work means certain things. First of all, it means that that separation between God and man is defeated. The separation between God and man is defeated. And the brokenness that that separation causes is also defeated. And full life of not only knowing God now, but for all eternity, is available to all, no exceptions. It's available to all, no exceptions. The Bible puts it this way in the Gospel of John. The book of John, the very first chapter, some of the very first words of the book. Yet to all who did receive him, Jesus, to all who did receive Jesus and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's a transaction of redemption. And that, in essence, is what we mean when we say the Gospel. The Gospel. So we've pulled, we've pulled what God is doing back further. You guys okay with me? Kind of going back with me? I don't want to fall. 
what is the end game of all that God is accomplishing? Because God is rebuilding, we've already said, God is rebuilding so much more than just an ancient city, just populated by undeserving exiles. God is actually building an eternal city for those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. The ancient Jerusalem, while it's amazing and and so sovereign what God is doing, it's but a picture of what God is doing on the grand eternal scale. So what is this city of God? What's it like there? And more importantly, I want to ask, who's it for? Who is it for? If God is after everyone, no exceptions, who is the city of God for and what is it like? I want to read to you a substantially long piece of scripture, but it is probably my favorite piece of scripture in all the Bible. If you're allowed to have a favorite, don't go posting. I went to this church and the pastor said he had a favorite, but it is. It's my favorite part of scripture. It's out of Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And I just want, I'm going to read it. It's a bit lengthy, but I want you to, let's have it with eyes asking the question, what is the city of God? What is it like? And who is there? Okay? Let's read together. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. One of the seven angels came to me and said, Come, I will show you the bride. That's the church, the wife of the Lamb, Jesus. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. When Jerusalem was first rebuilt and they... And they restored the temple. The first thing they did was offer sacrifices to God to pay for sins. But in the city of God, Jesus has covered all sins. There's no need for a temple. The Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations, who? The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of who? The nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night They will not have need of a lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Simply put, God is after everyone, no exceptions, and he sent his son, and he's building the city to prove it. It's an invitation to be a city person in the city of God, in the city of God, and the gospel 
what we just said, that work of Jesus that ends our separation, that does away with our brokenness and our removal from God, that, that, that takes that away and conquers that, that is, that is exempted from no one. It's not unavailable, lots of double negatives here, not unavailable to anyone. It's for everyone. It's all of Jesus for everyone. And the nations will be in the city of God. The nations will be in the city of God. We're nearly done, and I just want to end with this. In light of pulling the story of Nehemiah back to the greater story of what God was doing in that century, in light of pulling that story even further back to what God is doing throughout eternity, the the fair question is, what does this really mean for us? What does this mean for you as an individual? What does this mean for us as a church? And I think Nehemiah makes a a realization in chapter 7, verse 4, that we've already read it, but I I think it's a prophetic realization that that I'm trusting God is going to speak through to you and me today. Nehemiah, as he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, the walls are rebuilt, the gates are are firm and strong, the doors are in place, uh, the gatekeepers, the musicians, everyone is in position, Jerusalem is rebuilt, and then Nehemiah says this, now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. But there were few people in it. Can I just submit to you, the city of God is not full yet. The city of God is not full yet. This grand city that God is building, it's not full yet. Jesus himself said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. That is everyone. And he commands us to be sharers of this truth. God's power to save, the gospel, the truth of Jesus, is, the Bible calls it, the power of God for salvation. And Jesus commands us to be sharers of that. And I know this is familiar scripture, but let's read it like it's unfamiliar. When Jesus says in Matthew 28, he came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you to the very end of the age. Here's, here's, Here's the point of pulling back to a grander scale. I'm trusting for us to catch something of the grander view of the gospel. The grander view of what God is doing. In light of what God has always been doing, whether we zoom in on the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem with Nehemiah, or we pull it back to the history of a people, or we pull it back to the history of eternity, God's prerogative is to save, and the gospel is never in retreat. And I need to repent. I need to turn away from having a so-so view of the gospel. Have you ever been sharing the gospel with someone and it feels like a timeshare presentation? (laughs) Instead of an invitation to be a city person in the city of God. I'm not saying that sharing the gospel is easy, but I am saying that what's in the city of God? We see healing. We see a prophetic people serving God. We see the ministry of joy and love, and I think that can be our doorway to sharing the gospel. The people that you rub shoulders with, can I, can I pray for you? Can I, can I share something with you? It's not, hey, can I give you this presentation and hopefully you'll make a decision by the end of it? We need to turn away from the ungrand view of the gospel because God regards it as grand, and it's always been his work. And the city of God is not full yet. It's not full yet. 
So my prayer is, is that God stirs in me. It's been my prayer for myself, and it's my prayer for you all. It's my prayer for us as a church to catch the grand view of the gospel. I'm completely off my notes, but that's fine. <laughs> Colleen, can you and the team come up? So we pulled back to a grander view of Nehemiah and what God is doing. We pulled back to an even grander view of what God is doing. And it's like that map on the Ohio Turnpike. And we see, wow, where we are. And we see where we're heading. And I hope that, this, I hope that we catch an infusion of grandeur for what God has for us right now. The gospel in our hands. The ministry of reconciliation. Of reconciling people to God. And I want to trust that God is raising up specific responses in hearts across the room right now. And it's really not my job or role to call each of those out. But I trust that God is doing it right now. Raising up a response to, a, to a, what I hope is a fresh revelation of the gospel. Maybe you're like me and you need to repent of the ungrand gospel. To regarding the gospel as something less than God's grand eternal work. Maybe we've lost the, maybe you've lost the grand sense of what Jesus has done. And maybe you've put exceptions on the gospel and who it's for. Maybe you've put other lenses, worldly lenses, ways to classify and ways to limit and ways to, to label and, and correct and fix the lens that God actually wants the gospel to shine through unencumbered because God is after everyone, no exceptions, no exceptions. Maybe you need to remember, maybe all of us need to remember that no one at any time for any reason in any place is exempt from God's grand gospel. And lastly, maybe you need to hear, because God can use anyone at any time and will, maybe you need to hear that you actually are not disqualified for any reason from what God is doing in his grand scale. That you're not disqualified, you're not, you're not classified, you're not limited. That God actually has a grand design for you in that as well. And you're not stuck in that one moment at the arcade on the Ohio Turnpike when you're heading for the city. Because the city of God is not full yet. And then lastly, maybe you're hearing what I'm saying today and you realize you've never responded actually to Jesus personally. Maybe you have somewhat of an understanding of what I was saying about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, and allowing us the ability to return back to him and to know him, but you've never done that. And if that's true, can I say, don't let today pass without doing that. It's simple to do. It's just a declaration to God in prayer saying, yes, my faith, my belief is in Jesus Christ. And that's not an invitation to join a church per se or a religion or to declare that you have everything figured out. But if that's you, don't leave today. Would you come and see me afterwards? I would love to talk with you more and to pray with you. I've asked the team to lead us again in that song, Your Great Name. And I want to trust that God will deposit something of the grandness of his gospel. Can we stand for just a moment? Lord, we just thank you for the incredible scope of your work that is so beyond us, your pursuit of us through the ages, how you restore what is broken, how you give 
an inheritance to people who are exiled. How when we were separated from you, and, and the Bible says we were actually dead because of our sin, our inclination towards ourselves, that actually in that place, you sent your son Jesus to purchase us for you. And by placing our faith in you, we can have eternal relationship with you and life, life to the fullest. So Lord, where we have made your gospel ungrand, would you regrand it in our hearts? Would you reveal afresh the grand scope that you've placed on our heart, Lord, is that we invite others to join us in knowing Jesus. And Lord, would you stir that in us, Father? Would you give us eyes to see where people need healing? Would you give us eyes to see where you're speaking to us about someone prophetically and give us boldness to share and that when we're asked why we say because of who Jesus is and can I share with you what he's done and that people would come to know you in Jesus name would come to know you because of your great name God we love you Lord let's worship the Lord together now Thanks again for listening. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us. Church in the City. All of Jesus for everyone.